Our diversity is our strength, but our unity is our power. Unity? For Democrats? You sure about that, Nancy Pelosi? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Just asking. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California on KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, KKRN in Round Mountain, and AM 1480 in KG in uh, Eureka on KGOE. We're also heard up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ in Cottage Grove on KSO in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. ATNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, how eager were uh, some to vote in Tuesday's Mississippi runoff for the U.S. Senate? Well, elections officials say a Mississippi man collapsed and died on the way to vote with his wife, who later went back to cast her ballot. Wow, that's some dedication. Precinct bailiff Keith Vernado tells the Enterprise Journal that Emmett Booth was coming in the door at the South Macomb Baptist Church in southern Mississippi to vote Tuesday morning when he collapsed. He was taken to the hospital uh, where the uh, county coroner says he later died, but precinct worker Erica Johnson says his wife Marie returned to the precinct later in the day to vote. Johnson says the wife said that uh, her husband would have wanted her to do that. Wow. Now, to be clear, Desi Doyen, if you and I go to vote together <laughs> and I collapse and die before I can cast my vote, uh-huh. I don't want you to go back and vote. I want you to be so <laughs> distraught you can't even think about going back to vote. I mean, civic duty is one thing. Pike County Election Commissioner uh, said that uh, Marie Booth's decision to return to the vote to vote is a testament to her sense of civic responsibility. I'll say. I hope you'll have no such responsibility. <laughs> I want you to be distraught for months on end. When, well, uh, gosh, thanks. I, you're, you're welcome. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of which of that Mississippi runoff. Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith defeated Democrat Mike Espy in Mississippi's Senate runoff on Tuesday, as expected, but by an unusually small margin. 
in the deep red state after she had transformed the contest into something of a referendum on Mississippi's racist past, making jokes throughout the campaign about public hanging, which is hangings, which are hysterical in Mississippi, where voting rights activists have been murdered for trying to register voters to vote. And African-Americans have been lynched for daring to sign up to register to vote in years past. She made jokes about that and about voter suppression, also hilarious in Mississippi. Hyde Smith's runoff victory in the last federal race of the midterm elections was far from resounding. She took just uh, just less than 54 percent of the vote, reportedly, to ESPY's nearly 46% of the vote. That's an eight-point margin in a state that Donald Trump won by nearly 18 points two years ago. So that was a swing of 10% towards the Democrats in Mississippi. The result came uh, as a relief to Republicans who will have 53 senators to the Democrats' 47 in the new Congress. That's a two-seat pickup from what they had. Of course, the way Fox News described it in a headline last night, quote, GOP Senate victory in Mississippi shows strong support for Trump's successful policies. Okie dokie then. Yeah, not so strong, I would say. Uh, Espy is the third black Democrat to come close to winning a big-ticket contest, to come close but not to win a big-ticket contest in the South this year after Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum came up short in Georgia and Florida's gubernatorial uh, contests. And it comes a year after neighboring Alabama elected its first Democratic senator in a quarter century where black Alabamians made up a larger percentage of the electorate in that contest than they did in both 2008 and 2012 when Barack Obama was on the ballot. So not so sure there is such strong support for Trump's successful policies in the South, as Fox would hope to lead you to believe. That strong support, if you compare it, compare that 8% victory uh, in Mississippi on Tuesday, uh, if you go back to all of the U.S. Senate races to the year 2000, so we're going back 18 years the Republicans have won there in U.S. Senate races from anywhere from 69 percent back in 2002 down to their smallest margin in 2012 of 16 and a half percent. The uh, victory on Tuesday night for Cindy Hyde Smith Smith was less than half of that at eight percent. Uh, moreover, Nathan McDermott at CNN notes that uh, while the Democrats lost in Mississippi, it's pretty notable that Mike Espy actually did better than Democrats who lost in other Senate races this year in Missouri and Indiana and in North Dakota. Mike Espy got more than 46 uh, percent or about 46 percent of the vo- of the vote that beats Claire McCaskill's 45.5% in Missouri, Joe Donnelly's 45% in Indiana, and Heidi Heidkamp's 44.5% in North Dakota. So, yeah, for Democrats in Mississippi, they did pretty damn well 
and then there's the House of Representatives, of course, where Democrats voted today on their leadership uh, as they take the majority beginning in January, including for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. We'll have details on that, on that vote and what it means and doesn't mean for Pelosi and for Democrats and most notably for progressives. We'll be joined by progressive journalist, author and activist Norman Solomon in a little bit here. But we also have another race that uh, is now being called in the U.S. House. Yes, some three weeks after the uh, over three weeks since the November 6 midterm elections, Democrat Anthony Brindisi has defeated incumbent Republican uh, Congresswoman Claudia Tenney following a contentious race in New York's 20, uh, 22nd Congressional District. It was settled by absentee ballots more than three weeks after Election Day, according to AP, who declares Brindisi the winner today. Brindisi is an attorney and state assemblyman from Utica. He was ahead by less than 2,000 uh, votes on election night. And on Wednesday, his lead had grown to just under 4,000. So it has been increasing this whole time as additional absentee ballots were tallied, while the results from uh, nearly 2,000 remaining ballots have yet to be reported. Brindisi's lead makes it mathematically impossible for Tenney to prevail, says AP. Wow. Okay, then. If they're right, they have uh, retracted quite a few calls, but they did wait a really long time to call uh, to call this ra this race. Brindisi, 40 years old, campaigned on calls for civility and bipartisanship in a district that supported Donald Trump back in 2016. He cited health care, funding for new roads, bridges, water systems, campaign finance reform and help for farmers. As some of his top priorities, Tenney, however, has not yet conceded the race. Last week, she acknowledged that she uh, the numbers did not look good for her campaign. She said, I don't think we have a chance of prevailing. And yet at this hour anyway, she has yet to concede. She was an early and vocal supporter of Donald Trump, whose uh, brash rhetoric had similarities to the president's. So, again, an early and vocal supporter of Trump was rejected, making Fox News's headline that the GOP Senate victory in Mississippi shows strong support for Trump's successful policies somewhat uh, more difficult to believe, to stomach. Tenney's rhetoric turned off some of the area's leading Republicans, apparently, including her predecessor, former uh, Congressman Richard Hanna, Republican Congressman Richard Hanna, called uh, Tenney a, quote, pariah, who is, quote, full of anger and hate. Hmm. And that's coming from a Republican. Republicans outnumbered Democrats in this particular district. Voters there had favored Trump by some 16 percentage points back in 2016. Republicans fought hard to defend uh, to defend her. Uh, Donald Trump himself, as well as his son Eric and House Speaker Paul Ryan, all visited the district to raise money or to campaign, but it appears that it was not enough. That brings uh, the Democrats' pickup now to 39 seats at this hour, barring any surprises, such as the Democrat who took the lead in California's 21st district 
earlier this week, leading AP to uncall that race, that lead for that Democrat by about 800 Fewer than 800 votes looks like it will likely be enough, barring a recount, a surprise there. But it should be enough for Democrat T.J. Cox over incumbent Republican David Valadeo. We will see. Leaving only New York's 27th district uncalled, at least by AP, uh, where indicted Republican Congressman Chris Collins leads the Democrat there by nine-tenths of a percentage point at this hour. So hopefully the Republican will get their indicted guy in back into the Congress. He was indicted on insider trading a few months back. Insider trading based on knowledge that he gained while in the House, which is against the law, but Republicans don't look at that stuff anymore. So maybe he'll be back. It's a good look for uh, Republicans to uh, uh, what's his name? Duncan Hunter out here in California. He won. He is also indicted on some 60 charges along with his wife. Well, they do. They do wear their indictments. uh, Well, yes, they do. Uh, In all, however, it's looking still like a 40 seat pickup for Democrats, though, as noted, there could still be some surprises like this bizarre, mysterious case in North Carolina. That suddenly came up on Tuesday. Des, did you see this? I did not. Uh, This is, okay, the North Carolina State Board of Elections on Tuesday, according to the Charlotte Observer, refused to certify the results of the 9th Congressional District U.S. House election after a board member on the State Board of Elections cited what he called, quote, unfortunate activities in the eastern part of the district. It's unclear what those activities or what the failure to certify them might mean. This is uh, Tuesday night uh, from the Charlotte Observer. The board discussed whatever this uh, whatever these unfortunate activities were. The board discussed them in closed session. For some reason, the people weren't allowed to hear this in North Carolina. Republican Mark Harris reportedly defeated Democrat Dan McCready by just 905 votes in this race out of more than 280,000 cast. The uh, Democratic Election Board member Josh uh, Malcolm raised the issue in what was expected to be a routine certification of the results of all of uh, North Carolina's 13 congressional races. He asked the board to remove the ninth district from the list of those to be certified. The GOP has held the ninth district in North Carolina since 1963. Malcolm, who is the vice chair of the uh, state election board, said, quote, I'm very familiar with unfortunate activities that have been happening down in my part of the state. And I'm not going to turn a blind eye to what took place to the best of my understanding, which has been going on for a number of years that has repeatedly been referred to uh, referred to the U.S. attorney and the district attorneys for them to take action and clean it up. And in my opinion, those things have not taken place. What is it? What are these activities? What happened? Uh, Malcolm cited a statute that allows the board uh, to have the authority to take any necessary action, quote, to assure that an election is determined without taint of fraud or corruption and without irregularities that may have changed the result of the election. Now, apparently, uh, in a race this close, again, the Republican 
was thought to have won by 905 votes. Uh, Republican Mark Harris over uh, the Democrat Dan McCready in in a race this close, uh, which McCready lost by 905 votes. He could have asked for a recount of some fashion, but for some reason he did not. His chance to do so is now gone because of the timing here. But it, it seems, as, as best as I can tell, from trying to figure out what's going on here in North Carolina, never an easy thing to do. The Board of Elections uh, itself could ask for a recount before certifying if there's any questions about the tabulation. Uh, but it's unclear that that is even an issue here. Republicans, in response to this, they are not happy about it. They said uh, Dallas Woodhouse, the executive director for the state GOP, said we think we ha- uh, that the state board of elections have abused their discretion and violated the statute in question. This will inevitably end up in court. He says the fact of the matter is Mark Harris won the race. He got more votes. Uh, Woodhouse said that Republicans believe the issue stems from Bladen County, which is the district's easternmost county. Harris won Bladen, the Republican, uh, won in Bladen by a little bit more than 1,500 votes. Today, AP offers a few more details in this mystery. They report that the board met privately for nearly two hours before voting in public. The vote was nine to zero, reportedly, to certify all of the other races, but to not certify this one. So the board decided nine to zero to not certify this race. And yet they gave no detailed explanation. Board chair Andy Penry told reporters after the meeting, quote, I can't reveal to you the things that were done in closed session, referring to them as matters that are under investigation. But they voted to delay the certification until at least Friday when the board is set to reconvene. According to Malcolm, who uh, was the guy who originally raised the issue here, a state law that uh, reads the board can take any action necessary to assure that the election is determined without taint or fraud or corruption and without irregularities that may have changed the result is what they're going with for now. Uh, McCready conceded the race the day after the election, the Democrat, uh, when unofficial totals had Harris ahead by less than 1,900 votes. He didn't change his mind later this month when additional absentee and provisional votes cut that margin in half. So I I don't know this McCready guy, but it doesn't seem like he wanted to win very much here. Well, he didn't seem to try very hard in the aftermath. No, but he the, didn't. The mystery is very mysterious. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> the, the board apparently also has the authority to order new elections in uh, some circumstances if they want, if five of the nine members agree to do so. I can't imagine that happening. But in December of 2016, the state board agreed to send federal prosecutors what its staff had uncovered while scrutinizing the November 2016 election and absentee ballots in Bladen County, according to AP. But the board did not disclose what it had found at the time. And now we've got uh, just a bit more from Charlotte's NPR affiliate WFAE late today. They say that the chief investigator for the North Carolina Board of Elections took absentee uh, by mail ballots and envelopes from Bladen County immediately after the November 6 election. 
that would be this year's election, according to the chair of the county board of elections. North Carolina has a state board of election and each county has its own county board. Bobby Ludlam, the chair of the Bladen County Board of Elections, told uh, WFAE today that the board's chief investigator came to Elizabethtown to get the records during the week of the election. She was here the day after or around that time, said uh, Bobby Ludlam, the chair, uh, a Republican who chairs the county's board. I've heard rumors of allegations about what they're looking for, but they haven't said anything. Again, Harris won Bladen County by uh, more than 1,500 votes, but Michael McDonald of the U.S. Election Project, who is also trying to figure out this mystery here, says that there were not enough absentee vote-by-mail ballots in Bladen County to flip the current results, which are, uh, you know, to close the 905-vote gap. So even if something did go on in Bladen County with vote-by-mail ballots, as people are seem to be speculating, it does not seem like it would change the results of the race. I don't know if uh, McDonald is right or wrong on that point, but he's the expert on this sort of thing. And, of course, we don't even know for sure that it is even related to whatever the problem is here. Kind of bizarre. And, of course, depending on how this goes in the 9th District, it could change the, the results right now. Uh, Democrats are on track to get 40 seats in the to pick up 40 seats in the U.S. House. Who knows? Maybe it'll be 41 if something happens here in North Carolina. It might be. But, you know, the important thing is that apparently someone is taking action on something. And I hope that they do figure out what's going That's, on. And they because it doesn't really matter in the end. It doesn't really matter whether the, the seat flips or not. What matters is that they investigate it and they get it sorted and, out. And that the, the votes accurately reflect the the intent of the voters. But the fact that uh, it's a pretty low bar that you note, (laughs) Des, that uh, at least something is going on about something something here. Maybe being done about something, perhaps. We don't, yeah. uh, We know that uh, WFAE also reports two years ago, Bladen County resident McCray Dowless alleged that there was, quote, a massive scheme to run an absentee ballot mill involving hundreds of ballots. Dallas's allegations focused on a small race for the county's soil and water conservation district, but it received statewide attention because it was at the same uh, election, uh, the very close race for governor two years ago between um, the uh, new governor, Roy Cooper, and the, a Democrat and the Republican, Pat McCrory, who was ousted. Those allegations were later dismissed, however. So it uh, it remains a bit of a mystery. Uh, a, a, a lot of a mystery, in fact. Uh, nonetheless, no matter how that race ends up uh, getting decided, Democrats did extraordinarily well. And we've got some more numbers on that as we begin to look at how the Democrats are going to govern or try to with their majority in the U.S. House. That story and Norman Solomon coming up in uh, just a few minutes here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Just a quick thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. 
to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only thing that keeps us on those public airwaves. We don't rely on uh, corporate support or political support. We rely on you, and your support is needed now more than ever at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Nancy Pelosi is certainly hoping to rise up once again as the next Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Whether she'll be successful in that, that is still an open question. We'll speak with uh, Norman Solomon about that shortly and about what he sees that Democrats uh, and progressives, frankly, need to do no matter who becomes the next Speaker of the House. But for all the falderall about a smaller-than-expected blue wave this year, many in the media and, and even from some Democrats who are, you know, whining that they didn't win enough races, now that the actual votes have been counted, most of them anyway, uh, Democrats now appear to be on track to pick up as many as 40, 40 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's 40 Republican-held seats that were flipped to Democratic this year to give them as much as a uh, 235 to 200 vote margin over the GOP in the House. Now, according to... To uh, NBC News election data, Democrats this year won the U.S. House with the largest margin of victory in history for either party. Really? Yeah. Uh, Which is kind of what I've been trying to say since Election Day. This was huge for Democrats. And so it's kind of bizarre You know, yeah, I guess they lost some uh, Senate races and uh, that's going to be a serious problem when it comes to judges and so forth. Um, But they were never expected to win. We've known for years that it was going to be very difficult to defend those particular Democratic seats in states that Donald Trump won back in 2016 by huge margins. But this year, it's the uh, largest margin of victory in history for either party. Votes are still being tallied. Uh, And indeed, as we noted yesterday, that another race in California that had long been called for the Republican has now flipped to the Democrat by about 800 votes. So there still and this mystery I mentioned in North Carolina. So there still could be some movement there. But in general, Democratic House candidates currently hold an 8.8 million vote lead over Republicans as of this week. So this is the national vote that yeah. all Democrats yep. running in U.S. House races all got versus yep. the total GOP vote in House races. The uh, Democrats' national margin of victory in House contests, 8.8 million votes, smashes the previous record of 8.7 million votes. That was a record won by the Democrats back in 1974, just months after Richard Nixon resigned from office in disgrace amid the Watergate scandal. So Democrats 
won by more votes than they did even after Watergate. Now, the population is larger now, I suppose. So that's a mitigating factor. But in any event, these were huge numbers of the more than 111 million votes cast in total in U.S. House races nationwide. Democrats took a little bit more than 53 percent of those uh, of those uh, of those votes to retake the control of the House, while Republicans received 45.2 percent of the vote. Now, imagine how many seats they would have been able to pick up had it not been for GOP's extreme partisan gerrymandering in many of these states, like, for example, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, etc. Dave Wasserman of the uh, Cook Politico report, Political Report notes that, uh, according to the House clerk, in tw- 2008, Dem- Democrats won about 13 million more votes than Republicans did back in 2008, a presidential year when Barack Obama was, uh, was on the ballot. Their current margin, however, which is nearly 9 million votes, that is the largest in any midterm ever. Republicans uh, held on to the Senate, picking up two seats, of course, for a total of 53. Now uh, to the Democrats, 47, including Tuesday's apparent uh, and much narrower than expected win by Republican Cindy Hyde-Smith over Democrat Mike Espy in Mississippi in that runoff election. But the map was always terrible for Democrats this year in the Senate. So a flip uh, there was never seen as widely, uh, wildly likely or even possible in Mississippi, but in the Senate as a whole. So So it'll be interesting to see if these gains are going to be sustained by Democrats if voters continue to turn out in 2020. And if they have a if they make a progressive difference on the Republican Party. The Democratic caucus met on Wednesday in a closed session to choose their new leadership in the U.S. House in advance of officially taking the majority uh, control in January. The results are just in before airtime. We will talk about those results with Norman Solomon right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, the house is rocking today in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Nancy Pelosi was nominated by fellow House Democrats to be speaker on Wednesday, but she still faces a showdown vote when the full House convenes in January. Pelosi entered the closed-door caucus election in an unusual position today, running unopposed 
despite the clamor by some Democrats for new leadership. Pelosi was nominated as her party's choice for speaker by Congressman Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts, the 38-year-old grandson of Robert F. Kennedy, with no fewer than eight colleagues seconding the choice, including 78-year-old civil rights icon uh, Congressman John Lewis of Georgia and a number of newly elected lawmakers, including 31-year-old representative-elect Katie Hill of California. A sign of the party's mood emerged earlier in the day, reports uh, AP, as the House Democrats elected Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York as caucus chair, elevating the charismatic 48-year-old from the Congressional Black Caucus as a new generation of leaders pushes to the forefront. His slim victory in that race uh, by just about 10 votes over veteran progressive Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, another influential member of the Black Caucus, offers a window into the shifting landscape inside the party. Flanked by top progressive leaders, Lee made her pitch during the closed session, drawing on the record number of women, including minority women who ran for office and are now entering the new Congress. The majority, however, went to Jeffries, who used his speech to remind Democrats of their core accomplishments from the passage of the Civil Rights Act to the Affordable Care Act before pivoting to the future, saying that he was focused on standing up for everyone, white, black, Latino, Asian, Native American, every single American deserves us, he said, here in the U.S. Congress to work, Democrats and Republicans, on their behalf, to make their lives better. In a letter to colleagues ahead of voting today, Pelosi gave a nod to those who are clamoring for change. She said, we all agree that history is in a hurry and we need to accelerate the pace of change in Congress, writing uh, that the historic class of new first-term lawmakers, the largest since Watergate, will lead the Democrats uh, in their majority in the midterm elections. She said, my responsibility is to recognize the myriad of talent and tools at our disposal to take us into the future by showcasing the idealism, intellect and imagination of our caucus. Pelosi's opponents had pledged to usher in a new era for Democrats, but one by one, the powerful con uh, California congresswoman picked off the would be challengers and reportedly smoothed many skeptics. In the end, there was no one who was willing or able to mount a serious campaign against her bid to reclaim the Speaker's job, which she had held from 2007 to 2011 before the GOP took back the majority. In fact, according to the uh, New York Times, 32 Democrats voted against Pelosi's bid to become Speaker again on Wednesday. That's enough to win um, in the Democratic caucus, but not enough to win in a full House vote in January if all Republicans vote against her as Speaker, as expected, and uh, if those 32 Democrats join them. If as many as 17 Democrats vote against her in the House vote in January, they could undermine her election and potentially give the Speakership to a Republican if they dared. The challengers to Pelosi, however, are, for the most part, at least in Congress, not progressives. They are mostly white, mostly male members who are actually less progressive than Pelosi. And so far, 
they have been unable to put forward an alternative to her. So Pelosi ran today in the Democratic caucus unopposed, which does not necessarily speak particularly well for her opposition's leadership skills, frankly. Several factions within the Democratic caucus in the House worked against her, but they failed to gain ground in recent days. The reality, says Congressman Brian Higgins of New York, is there is no alternative. He had signed on to the letter opposing Pelosi, but reversed course after she tapped him to lead his effort to expand Medicare to those uh, above the age of 50. Between now and January, it's expected that Pelosi will work the levers of power by doling out the many committee seat assignments and subcommittee chairmanships and other perks that she is able to offer or withhold as incentives to win over supporters. Presuming Pelosi wins the speakership in January, as most expect, there will still be the battle over the direction of the party in the new Congress. To that end, uh, writing at Common Dreams this week, progressive journalist and activist Norman Solomon argues that Pelosi and her second-in-command, Steny Hoyer, have been running the Democratic machinery in the House of Representatives since 2003, and they're experts at combining liberal rhetoric with corporate flackery. Pelosi is frequently an obstacle to advancing progressive proposals, Solomon argues. Hoyer is significantly worse as he avidly ser serves such constituents as giant banks, Pentagon contractors and Wall Street titans. The duo, he says, has often functioned as top drawer power tools in the hands of powerful corporate military interests. And that, Solomon goes on to argue, means that progressives must lead now from the bottom up in 2019. Here to explain exactly what that means is Norman Solomon. He's a journalist, media critic, and the national coordinator for the online activist group RootsAction.org. And he's the executive uh, director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. He is co-author of Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, and the follow-up report, Democratic Autopsy One Year Later, released just last month. He's also author of many books on media, politics, and public policy, including War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. Norman Solomon, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. Uh, before we delve into your argument about how uh, progressives and Democrats need to move ahead in the new Congress, what, what do you make of this challenge to Pelosi's leadership with nobody actually stepping forward to replace her, but 32 Democrats apparently today voting against her as the next speaker. Well, Brad, I think you set the stage really well in your introduction. And what I make of it is that these are mostly more corporate, more mainline Democrats than uh, even Nancy Pelosi is, as you noted. And I think their challenge is largely wilting. It comes down, you know, I think of that old fable about uh, the mice who figure out how to stop the cat, all they have to do is put the bell on the cat so they know it's coming. And then the question that stops them is, who's going to bell the cat? Who's going to put it on? <laughs> and I think that's their problem, these more conservative Democrats. None of them are willing to step forward and run against her because they probably think they can't win, and then uh, she's not going to look favorably on all the perks that could go their way that won't as a result. So I think I, I agree with you. It's very likely she will be the next Speaker of the House. 
Uh, we have often said that the power of uh, Democrats to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory should not be underestimated. But we can't I, I, I can't imagine these 32 Democrats or 17 of them actually voting against her, voting in favor of a Republican in January. This is uh, I mean, th- this has to be a, a, a threat at this point. Right. Not something they're actually going to follow through with, is it? As well as the fact that, as I understand it, they could vote present and then reduce the required number of yes votes for Pelosi to make her speaker. And some of these folks have campaigned swearing up and down. They wouldn't vote for her for speaker. Of course, some of them can say that in the secret ballot that happened uh, on Wednesday, they did not vote for her. Uh, and some of them might just vote present on mm-hmm. the House floor come early January. I think it's January 3rd coming up for the decisive full House vote. Mm-hmm. So I think there's ways to uh, square this circle, and certainly Pelosi's as, be- as good of a circle square as you can get in the, in the Congress. Now, I, I know there are plenty of reasons to complain about Pelosi uh, from many different directions, but as leader of the Democrats, and as Speaker of the House uh, for those uh, number of years, hasn't she been remarkably effective at getting lots of key legislation passed when she was Speaker uh, the last time? If you compare her successes uh, in in uh, you know keeping the uh, the Democrats on track with the dismal failures of Republicans to get almost anything. Uh, when they had much bigger majorities to get almost anything done uh, for, you know, other than that tax cut they rammed through Congress. Well, of course, unfortunately, uh, the Senate approved these two last Supreme Court justices. But, of course, in the House side, yes, they have a dysfunctional, um, although very dangerous and evil-inflicting president in Trump right now. I think that we can say during the two years, uh, well, two years that Pelosi was Speaker while she had a Democratic President Obama, mm-hmm. before that she was Speaker for a couple of years under Bush, yes, Pelosi basically was a lieutenant for President Obama, for good and ill. And so, you know, we can talk about the Affordable Care Act and so forth. She certainly cut the legs out from under a public option, which would have been helpful so people had more uh, alternatives when they looked at health care. And we know that Obamacare's had some real downsides in that regard, uh, left to the tender mercies of the market. You know, Pelosi has been somewhere on the right-center spectrum of the Democratic Party in Congress. I think she's clearly not as progressive as the Democratic base that turned out to vote in November. And that's for the long-term future of progressives in the party. I think she's problematic. And... Uh, let, let me pr- uh, push back a little bit before we get to that uh, that point you're 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 getting at here uh, on Obamacare. Not to relitigate that, and on the public option, of course, I favored the public option. I favored uh, I favored single payer for that matter. But Obamacare was able to pass with. Finally, one single vote, barely, uh, in in the U.S. Senate. Uh, don't we have to? Don't progressives need to recognize that reality and the reality that some, you know, 20, 30 million Americans now have health care or at least access to health care who did not have it prior to Obamacare? That 
Making it better now, improving it, Medicare for all, etc., would be a great idea. But in order to get it passed, doesn't she deserve some credit, um, along with the Democrats in the Senate, for getting anything through at all to avoid a, uh, you know, the dreadful embarrassment for Republicans when they tried to repeal it, for example? Of course we should try to get any incremental improvements we can, but I think Pelosi did not fight for the public option. She ultimately pulled the rug out from under it. Mm -hmm. And when you look at now what she's doing, she is putting in a straitjacket any possibility for adequate funding for significant social programs. A couple of things she has come down solidly for, including the so-called pay-go rule. And she doesn't have to do this. You know, there is a clear Democratic majority in the House. And for her to say that every social program that there's more funding for has to be compensated for on some kind of cut or tax increase is really a gratuitous way to put us in a box, to stick us in a corner. And she certainly has been a very corporate uh, flack in many ways in terms of policies, not pressing for uh, improvements in terms of taxing the wealthy or corporations. One specific, I mean, I think being a lieutenant of the president, President Obama, um, cut both ways. Mm -hmm. And so when he moved to decimate uh, the post office by taking steps through his appointments to further privatize it, as we're seeing taking place, Mm -hmm. uh, when he moved ahead towards uh, really undermining public education with his uh, education secretary and so forth, and there's much else we could talk about as he matched President Bush in terms of the amount of bombs that he ordered to be dropped in various countries of the world, she was silent. She was an accessory to those actions. And we need a better leader of Democrats in Congress. You argue in your uh, piece at Common Dreams this week, Democratic Party leadership is upside down, that presuming Pelosi becomes the next uh, speaker, as still expected, uh, that progressives must lead the caucus from the bottom up, that they can actually uh, lead from that point. What, what, what do you mean by that exactly? How, how can they lead if Nancy Pelosi and the arguably more conservative Steny Hoyer are, uh, are at the top of that pyramid? It's all about constituent power, and there was a great statement by now the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, Mark Pocan, from the Madison area in Wisconsin. A couple of weeks ago, he came out of a meeting uh, with Nancy Pelosi, and he publicly said, people on Capitol Hill think that we're the center of the universe. We're not. It's the people who elected us Mm. are the center of the universe. That's true if we mobilize, if we raise hell. I'm part of RootsAction.org now with 1.2 million people active online. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of other groups at RootsAction.org, we are dedicated to mobilizing to make sure that more and more progressive constituents make their senators and representatives fully aware that they're being watched closely. And there are such things as primary challenges. And a lot of the utility of threatening a primary challenge is, even if it doesn't take place, it creates pressure on members of Congress to move in a more progressive direction. So your argument here is really not about uh, the, the members of Congress as much as it is about the voters, the people, the activists, um, continuing to hold them accountable, continuing to, uh, to make their voices be heard. Do, do I, am I sort of understanding that correctly? 
I think that's right. And it's about social movements profoundly providing leadership in Congress that can't, as a practical matter, be initiated or led by members of Congress themselves. I mean, Brad, if you think about all the great changes we can be proud of, uh, say, um, marriage equality that Mm -hmm. was eventually embraced by the top of the Democratic Party, it didn't start there. It came from the grassroots, and we organized and we agitated millions of people one way or the other, made their views known, and that's really what changes history, I think. I'm struck by, uh, I was struck uh, during the eight years of Obama, one of the things that happened in the uh, aftermath of George W. Bush, which we thought was the worst presidency of all time. It certainly was up until that point. Uh, But I was struck by what happened after Obama came in, after the Democrats uh, had big majorities in both houses of Congress that uh, people, the citizens, kind of stopped caring. They kind of said, "Okay, we're safe. George W. Bush is gone. Democrats are back in power. And they sort of turned away. And, you know, I I don't know if you uh, observe something similar as a progressive journalist and activist, but uh, it seems like the citizenry said, "Okay, Obama's got this. The Democrats got this. We can stand down. We're exhausted after eight years of Bush. Uh, is there a danger that that uh, may happen again? Uh, never mind if, if uh, you know, Democrats are able to win back the House, I'm sorry, the, uh, the White House in two years. But is there a danger that that may happen now, that people may think, OK, well, the Democrats uh, have the House. We're good. We don't need to pressure them anymore. Absolutely. That is what had happened in the past. And it's uh in part of our, you might say, political DNA or the zeitgeist, where a lot of people have a lot going on in their lives, and at least when they get Democrats in charge, there's more of a tendency among a lot of progressives to think, well, the worst is over, the emergency is gone. In fact, whether it's climate change or perpetual war or the rich continuing to get richer, these problems are festering, yes, worse under Republicans, but for us to sit back in any way and not continue to organize and pressure is to leave Congress to its uh, natural setting. It's sort of like uh, the call of the corporate wild (laughs) that they're immersed in, and that is the lobbyists are 24-7, 365, Mm. from Wall Street, from the military contractors, from those who are often led by uh, people like uh, Dick uh, Gephardt, who leave Congress and then represent the uh, medical health care ripoff industry, and these lobbyists are just pouring huge amounts of money and face time and contributions promised to members of Congress if they vote from progressive standpoints the wrong way. So the only way to counter that, and I think Bernie Sanders has been very articulate about this, very strong, likewise Elizabeth Warren, is that we have to mobilize, no matter who's in power, to fight back against Wall Street. Yeah, you're right. The uh, lobbyists, they don't get tired, do they? No, never. uh, The Progressive Caucus in Congress, uh, the elected officials who make up the Progressive Caucus, uh, in the past, while they've had, you know, good progressive ideas and ideals, they seem mostly mostly uh, toothless and easily ignored uh, by the rest of the Democrats. That caucus has now grown in size, as far as uh, I can tell, with these uh, new elections in 2018. Can they be as easily dismissed this time around just by sheer numbers? I think there's no doubt that the probable 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is taking the Progressive Caucus more seriously now, partly because she needs their commitments of votes to become Speaker, but also because she sees where the momentum is happening in the party, the votes at the grassroots, the polling numbers, for instance. What is in my piece I hotlink to? What is the percentage of the general public, not just Democrats, yep. but the whole U.S. public, for $15 an hour minimum wage, 59%. What is the support nationwide for Medicare for all? 70%. One more example, higher taxes on the wealthy are supported by 76%. It's harder for her and her uh, right hand, and I mean right hand, uh, <laughs> sidekick, Steny Hoyer, uh, to tap dance around those progressive agenda items because we're beginning as progressives to mobilize and win more elections at the grassroots. And I think that's where the future has to be. In a cover story for The Nation, William Greider uh, wrote that your paper uh, that, that you co-authored with a bunch of other progressives, uh, Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, uh, written after the 2016 presidential election, was, quote, an unemotional dissection of why the Democrats failed so miserably and it warns that the party must change profoundly or else remain a loser. Well, uh, two years later, Norman, uh, with uh, Democrats clearly big winners in the 2018 elections, uh, has the party, in fact, changed profoundly yet as you see it? Or is that uh, still remain to be seen at this point? Is that what we are now waiting for as we move into uh, 2019 and a Democratic majority? I think the party has changed partly, certainly not profoundly, but for a large extent, it's been because a lot of these uh, on-the-ground progressives, and there are literally millions when you look at all the different groups that have been active online and on the ground, we've been active promoting a progressive agenda. And even when our sort of marquee candidates have lost, like Beto O'Rourke in Texas, mm -hmm. uh, like Stacey Abrams uh, in Georgia, uh, like uh, Andrew Gillum mm -hmm. in uh, Florida. These were statewide races. Uh, a lot of voter suppression by Republicans contributed to their loss. But the fact is that those three candidates I named brought in on their coattails several Democrats into Congress who were able to flip the district because of the excitement of the progressive program that was being articulated very wonderfully by those candidates at the top of the state ticket. And I think that can't be missed by uh, people in Congress who are worrying, perhaps, uh, as Democrats, whether they will be primaried uh, in the way that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was able to topple the fourth-ranking uh, Democrat in uh, the House just a few months ago. And I'm glad you mentioned some of those uh, sort of marquee progressive candidates, Beto O'Rourke and uh, Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum and so forth. Uh, they may not have won, but there were a lot of very progressive candidates who did win. And, uh, you know, on the night of the election, there was a lot of folks in the media sort of saying, well, looks like that blue wave didn't pan out. Uh, and Democrats, you know, uh, you know, see candidates who are aligned with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as just being too far to the left. Well, when we bothered to count all of the votes, Norman, a lot of those candidates actually did win. And it looks like Democrats could actually end up with 40, a 40 seat pickup potentially in the U.S. House um, that the media seemed like they couldn't wait to play down. 
Uh, how how do you explain how do you explain that? Because to me, this looks like a a huge Democratic victory and b a huge progressive Democratic victory, really all over the country. Yes, as more votes came in, and including Orange County, as it turned out, sweeping every Republican out of office in that part of Southern California in Congress. I think it goes to how news media, and this includes even some of the better ones like Van Jones on CNN, mm-hmm. election night, they're eager to project from very small returns that have come in the sweeping statements about what's happened nationwide. And more broadly, it's sort of a metaphor. Uh, a lot of the people uh, who are in these TV studios are not really connected with what's happening at the base of the party. No, they're not. And I, it seems like they're looking for a narrative and uh, often a narrative that seems to support Republican ideas instead of the people's ideas, which is why I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the support among the public for things like $15 an hour minimum wage, Medicare for all, uh, higher taxes on the wealthy. Getting those uh, messages out, it seems like the voters understand them, but the media uh, still does not. So, uh, Norman, the work you do uh, it remains so important uh, as director of the uh, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy and national coordinator for RootsAction.org. Norman, greatly appreciate you joining us today. I'll link over to to your story at Common uh, Dreams and to your uh, uh, to your autopsy for the Democratic Party one year later. Uh, as they must be continued to be pushed uh, to get better. Glad folks like you are there to do it. Norman, really appreciate you joining us today, my friend. Hey, and thank you, Brad. You bet. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other broadcast, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Though we do thank those of you who choose to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support our work here. We rely on only you to stay on your public airwaves bradblog.com slash donate uh, before the end of the year. That would be fantastic. You can also drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Find, follow, and share our work there. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 